Welcome to Turnpikers, the show about the people who make up the Denver and Boulder tech scene. We're your hosts, Luke Beatty and Danny Newman. Information about this show is available at turnpikers.com and at turnpikers on Twitter. All right, everybody, welcome to what we just found out is the 18th episode of the Turnpikers podcast. We have Brad Feld here for about half hour, 45 minutes. So welcome to our little uh, cozy living room down here. I, I feel like I'm in the bottom of something in the darkness. Yeah. Very happy. Yeah, we've done a couple satellite locations, and you can tell by the way everybody carries themselves when they're able to see out the windows. The uh, vibrancy increases dramatically. This is a kind of a... I'm super happy to be in like a dark cave. It feels really good. It's yeah. safe. Yeah. I'm with my friends, you know, Luke and Danny, and I'm safe. Yeah, and uh, there's no way out. So... Uh, you didn't tell me we're going to do this in an escape room. Yeah. Yeah, all these little Find chests the and stuff, they're all full of canned goods and, <laughs> and beef jerky, so we'll be okay until somebody needs to go to the restroom. Let's spend a few minutes talking about the overall health and wellness of venture capital in general. And um, uh, Danny and I talked a lot about it. We want to try to discuss some things that, that we haven't heard you talk a lot about. And one of those topics for us is it, everybody has a boss. And I think a lot of people that exist in the ecosystem that we do feel like uh, their boss is a venture capitalist and, uh, and maybe the chairman of their board who is also that. But maybe if you could spend some time sharing with us about your bosses and tell us about, you can either talk about the Foundry LPs uh, or not, or just LPs in general. And, you know, I've, I've started to hear more and more about how the entrepreneur's experience is actually being sometimes... Uh, determined by by LPs, and you sort of forget about that. Everybody's got a boss, and so tell us about your bosses and how that how that works, uh, and the ground rules for that, because I think it's a it's a huge part of the loop. Let me start by framing it from sort of my view of uh, how the VC and entrepreneur interact in the context of a boss. Um, I hope nobody I work with thinks that I'm their boss. Uh, my simple goal is as long as I support the entrepreneur or the CEO, um, I work for her and I could just start from that. Um, I do like to have, you know, I like to have one responsibility in the context of investing in a company, which is if I don't support the CEO, it's my job to do something about it, which does not necessarily mean fire the CEO it means do something about it. Like, Go deal with reality that all of a sudden this person is not being effective or you don't feel like he's doing what, from my frame of reference, makes sense. Um, so I, I hate the VC as boss frame of reference, although I realize many VCs end up playing a one-up, one-down power game with the CEOs of the companies. So start from that frame of reference. Um, roll it to our LPs. We have about 25 uh, investors in our funds. Uh, these investors are all except for one large institutions. So their institutions could be university endowment. Um, one that's well known is Utimco, which is University of Texas investment management company. Our newest partner, uh, Lyndall Eekman, was our largest investor. He ran Utimco's $5 billion alternatives group for a dozen years. And through that, invested in funds like ours and Union Square Ventures and a bunch of others. Uh, true and and uh, many that people have heard of. Uh, Utimco is a limited partner, so we work with Utimco. Um, we are ultimately uh, responsible for the investments of their money, um, but the dynamic is one that is uh, as a limited partner. So unless we do something egregious in the context of our fund and our behavior for the life of the fund that we've raised, our limited partners. They have an ability in the same way that I have an ability to fire a CEO. They have an ability as a group to essentially terminate our ability to keep investing. That's a very extreme edge case mm -hmm. for LPs. So it happens almost never because really the LPs don't want to have to take over a fund anyway. And we have 25 of these, right? They could be university endowments uh, or they are university endowments. We have a few insurance companies. Uh, we have a few pensions, corporate pensions. Um, we have some what's called a fund of funds, which are other funds that have aggregated money, often from the same university endowments, pensions, et cetera, and then invest in funds on behalf of that. We have an advisory board of about, I think it's about 10, 
of our 25 or so investors. And they're the ones that ultimately hold us uh, accountable in the context of the way a board of directors would hold a company accountable. We're, you know, and do they meet? Twice a year we have an LP meeting. Um, with, and do they meet individually or independently? Of, of, of They don't meet independently, okay. um, although they could if they wanted to. Yep. Um, I would expect that they would if we were having a problem or not behaving They may be having one of those meetings right now. <laughs> they may be having one of those meetings. I hope it's in a dark room like this. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say we don't try to manage the communication between them, and many of them have one-off communication with each other. The LP's ultimate decision point in interacting with a venture fund in general is that they can decide not to fund the next venture fund. So the big uh, calibration for a VC, and this is independent of your performance. It has a lot to do with your behavior, right? If you separate it into behavior and performance, your performance matters a lot in terms of whether your LPs are going to want to continue to fund you um, although many of them are funding for a long period of time over multiple funds. So they recognize that there's, it's hard to tell what the performance is in a relatively short period of time. And there's lots of ups and downs in performance in venture funds because you're investing early in highly illiquid companies where you, know, you don't know for seven or 10 years whether they're worth anything. So the performance of the funds take a long time. So their investment has to be a long-term commitment to us. However, over some period of time, if you're not performing, ultimately an LP will say, I'm, I'm done. And usually for VC funds, when somebody invests in your first fund, they're typically making, in their mind, a two or three fund commitment. It takes you to your third fund, really, for them to start understanding what your performance looks like because of the length of time. Assuming you raise a venture fund every three or four years, a new fund every three or four years. So you often see funds raising fund one and fund two. And then fund three is the first one where performance really starts to come into play. And certainly by fund four, you're either clearly on a performance track And they track may be using the proceeds at that point. If you had a very successful fund one, they're effectively playing with house money, right? You've returned a bunch of money back, so now yep. you know, they're a net ahead of their investment. The other thing that causes LPs not to support a VC fund is if the VC fund doesn't do what it said it was going to do. And this can be in two categories. One is just purely change a strategy or worse strategy shift sort of this passive dynamic where hey we're going to do a bunch of early stage investments and that's where the opportunity is and the lp says okay good i'm that's what i'm investing in and then a year and it's like you look at what they've invested in like why did you invest in all these companies at a two billion dollar valuation oh well you know we're hunting unicorns now and the lp says feeling their oats what like like how did that work right so that's a strategy shift the other is just fundamentally bad behavior, and fundamentally bad behavior ranges from, you know, it could be unethical behavior, one end of the spectrum. It could just be that you have a very dysfunctional partnership. You have four partners or three partners who have started a firm, and one of them gets booted out, and the other two are fighting with each other. And you see this happen. It's been very public with a couple of funds recently, yeah. you know, where you had a first-time fund, a new fund, and the two GPs blew up. And one of them try to take over the fund. And that causes the LPs to get much more engaged because it's their capital that they're protecting. So the boss metaphor is a weak one. And it's a weak one in the GPLP construct because there's very specific characteristics that would cause that relationship to maintain. I hope, and I, I guess I fantasize that the boss relationship is a weak one in the context of VC and entrepreneur. Because, you know, a CEO has a board of directors that you report to, but if you have alignment with the board of directors, especially at the early stages and, and as you're growing your business, your hope would be that they're holding you accountable, but they work for you. They're helping you win versus objectively viewing you as a one-down relationship. By the way, I think, you know, somebody listening to this could say, well, gosh, I kind of wish that was my relationship with my boss also, right? As long as my boss supports me, I would hope you know, she was helping me win. And for anybody who's ever had a boss, sometimes that true, that's true, but an awful, you know, awful lot of times it's not. And it's usually not black or white. Right. Okay, so there's that constituency. Let's talk for a second, and then I know Danny has a topic he wants to go over. Let's talk for a second about, in the context of Foundry, the thing that is most uh, impressive or just sort of amazing to me about what Foundry does is, you know, you talk about, people collecting and how that's how a lot of the things need to be done in all these enterprises, whether you're a VC or a 
founder or whatever, and that's sort of what we're all in the business of doing. But I feel like, I feel like Foundry, um, and maybe it's just because we have a, a good seat for it and it's happening everywhere. I feel like you guys spend a great deal of time making very significant long-term commitments to lots of different constituencies, whether it's Boulder or Techstars or, or some diversity issues. Or I feel like you guys really collect a big bag every year, kind of, of a new thing that you're committed to. And I'm just wondering how you guys maintain that because this is not a something where you've done it for five to 10 years and then you know you can set all those bags down and take a walk and start picking up a couple new bags. And um, how is it that you have a, a new partner? So that may help a little bit, but at the end of the day, you guys have, you know, you pick up a lot of responsibility and commitment to things on a pretty regular basis. Um, and the capacity that you guys have, and that office is not, you know, you guys don't triple in size every year. Every time you raise a new fund and make a commitment to another organization or another sort of value sometimes, how are you guys doing that? I think it comes from a couple of different things. Um, the first is Seth, Jason, Ryan, and I, when we started, worked hard, uh, and we used an outside uh, facilitator, uh, a woman named Nancy Ralston, to really explore and codify uh, our values um, both on a personal and professional basis, knowing that we're different people. So rather than sort of let it evolve, we we started with a frame framework of what we now call deeply held beliefs. I don't think we called them that at the beginning. But those deeply held beliefs were ones that we expected were bedrock of what we did. In the context of that, we weren't constantly trying to figure out what was our new principles, right? We had a set of them. And as a result, we could then spend all of our time working instead of spending all of our time trying to figure out what work we were going to do because we made those investments. And we continue to make those investments systematically in each other. Uh, if we look at today, we're not just extremely close business partners, but we're best friends and the canonical example of that is that when Jason got married two years ago, uh, Seth Ryan and I were the, the best men in his wedding, right? So it's, it's not a fake best friends. Yes, we're great friends. We really are best friends. And that gets rid of, we, it gets rid of an enormous amount of bullshit. Now we have plenty of conflict between us, but because we have this clear sense of what we're trying to do, it then makes it easy to continue to take on new things and continue to make commitments to things that are important to us because they fit within our values. Second thing is that we made a very conscious decision when we started not to grow a firm, but instead to work hard on the things we wanted to work hard on. So we tried and we continue to try to cut out as much overhead as we possibly can. And any organization that grows has overhead um, you know, you're hiring people, you're managing people, you're, you've got people's, you know, career paths, you've got all kinds of interaction effects that you've got to deal with. Because we don't grow, we have none of that. And so all of the overhead of learning each other and learning new people and getting them into the organization and figuring out where they fit, we just don't have. So that's probably, you know, 25% of your time if you're in a, in a growing organization that we get back. The next is, as part of our deeply held beliefs, we have a very long-term view to what we do. We started off saying, you know, we're investing in these themes. We define these themes. They evolve over time. But they're themes that we think have at least a 20 or 30-year investing time horizon. So we sort of framed it from the beginning that what we're doing has a 20 or 30-year time horizon versus we're constantly looking for the next big thing. Like, I hate that cliche. Like, what's the next big thing? It's like, I don't have a fucking idea what the next big thing is. Like, I hope the next big thing is I live for at least another year or two. Yeah, you're just looking out for number one. Right? Yeah. yeah I'm, you know, like, I don't know. Yeah. And I just want to be able to- You want to be around for it. I want to be able to continue <laughs> to participate in this. So that long-term view uh, was part of it. And then the last is we try very hard. I think we have clear value systems. We try very hard. We know as individuals that we fuck up plenty. And that is, you know, we and, and the mistakes we make come from all different directions, right? They could be a tactical mistake about something that we just made a bad decision on. They could be 
we didn't pay attention to something that was going on with someone and missed something. It's that we said something without realizing the implications of what we said. It's that we did something that we thought was well-articulated and some people didn't think it was or were impacted negatively by it. As part of that, we try to have these very continuous feedback loops around what we're learning. And we try to be very open. And accessible. Yeah, very open to the feedback, right? If somebody sends me a note and says that, you know, I'm an asshole, I try not to have an emotional response to it. I try to say, what did I do that causes you to feel that I'm an asshole so I can learn from it? Doesn't mean that I agree with you. Doesn't mean that I think, you know, all of a sudden because you've told me I'm an asshole that I need to fix something. I don't learn from it. And by the way, if, if I did something that caused you to feel that way, I'm sorry, doesn't necessarily cause me to take specific action, but that feedback loop of learning, I'm using a personal example, apply it to everything. In the context of that, we believe firmly that it's super easy to talk about stuff. VCs love to prognosticate. Entrepreneur people, humans love to prognosticate. That's super easy. It's harder to explore and understand something. But what's really hard is to engage. And where all the learning happens is when you actually engage. And I think this is one of the challenges in society today, especially with the way that uh, Can you give me an analogy for that? I'll give you an example. So I went to prison uh, two Fridays ago. I spent the day in a maximum security prison, level four maximum security prison, which is one down from a supermax, in uh, Lancaster, California with an organization called Defy Ventures. It was a top 10 life experience. Uh, I I shouldn't say good life experience, but peak life experience. And the amount that I learned from that experience was significant. Okay, now back up. Why did I do that? How did I get to that? I have a deeply held belief that extreme diversity in everything is a net positive to society. And especially in the context of entrepreneurship and innovation, um, I think that diversity is key. And it's not just diversity race or gender, you know, sexual preference, sexual identity. It's diversity of experience, education, background, uh, thought, perspective, et cetera. So that's something that I've cared a lot about. I've spent significant time on it in certain areas like National Center for Women Information Technology, which I've been chair of for over a decade, getting more girls and women involved in computer science. As part of that belief system, Last year, we started a foundation at Techstars called the Techstars Foundation, which is a 501c3 that's affiliated with Techstars. Around the table, we did the initial funding of it. Uh, we're now expen- extending that funding more significantly. The mission of the foundation is to increase diversity in tech entrepreneurship. That's it. That's the mission. So we're very focused on what that means and how to do that. We gave five grants uh, at the end of or beginning of this year, first five grants, small because we hadn't raised a ton of money yet. One of them was to this organization, Defy. And what Defy's mission is, is to help people who are incarcerated learn about entrepreneurship and change their life through becoming entrepreneurs. The easy throwaway line is a lot of people who are in prison are entrepreneurs. They just sold an illegal product. So they have an entrepreneurial skill set. At the same time that we made this, we're in the middle of one of the mo- easily the most contentious election cycle uh, of my adult life. A number of things happened that caused me to start to think about the notion of privilege more deeply and recognize that I come from a position you know, of privilege and many of us come from a position of privilege. And intellectually, it's easy to talk about that. You know, we see Black Lives Matter. It's easy to be supportive of that kind of thing. You know, we're in this mode of, again, we're still at that first level, right? Intellectualizing it, prognosticating it, saying it's important. So let's skip to level three, which is actually engaging in something. When we, we supported Defy, I met with the CEO, Kat, and, and Kat's a remarkable woman. In the conversation with her, what I realized was I had absolutely no idea what the experience she was talking about was. And I had no real understanding of the men that she was working with in these prisons around the arc of our entrepreneurship. And I really had no real sense, you know, in in a visceral sense of their own experiences in life. 
I've been in jail and a prison before. I've had two friends who have been incarcerated, both for white-collar crimes. I grew up in Dallas, Texas in a middle-class neighborhood. I went to school in, at MIT in Boston. I lived in a – when I moved there, Central Square where I lived was a little rough. But by the time – you know, if you go to Central Square today, it's pretty gentrified. I just had no exposure to the experience that the people who are incarcerated at Lancaster, for example, have had. So I spent a day – with them as humans engaged working with them on this program we don't call them cons or prisoners we call them entrepreneurs in training uh, the day we went was a graduation it was a full day which included a pitch competition so just like any other pitch co competition you would have seen shark tank or whatever they they have a process of pitch competition throughout the day they have a graduation from the six-month program on entrepreneurship which includes them wearing caps and gowns and matriculating across stage. And about 50% of the interaction or the, the content for the day is real interaction with each other. A series of very intense exercises. There's one that's called um, uh, Walk the Line where there's uh, a, a yard. This will be the blog post that I write about the day when I get to it. Uh, it's a yard that separates the EITs from the volunteers. There's 75 of us and about 50 of them. And you stand five yards behind the line, five feet behind the line, and cat asks questions. And if the answer is yes, you go to the line. If the answer is no, you step back. And they start off kind of easy in terms of the questions, but then they get really intense. And, you know, there were, there were a handful of questions that cause you to change the way you think about the world. I'll give you one that was a kind of easy one that caused me to change the way I thought about the world. Question was, when you were a kid, did you regularly hear gunshots? And you look across and every single person's on the line on the EIT side. And there's, of the 75 of us, there's five people on our side. Have you ever lost someone you love to AIDS? And I have, so I was on the line. But there were five or six of us on our side of the line. Almost all of the people on the other side mm. of the line. Right? When, so, series of questions like that. As we graduated, when, you know, you talk to people, have you ever, you know, have, well, the question wasn't, have you ever graduated? None of them had ever graduated from anything. One guy said, the last time I walked across the stage was in elementary school. Another one said, it never would have occurred to me that I'd be standing in front of a group of people who are clapping. Mm. Right? So I'm giving you little sound bites from 12 hours of this. And at the end of the 12 hours, you leave the prison and go through all the series of things and give your IDs back. And you get in your car and you drive back to get on your plane to go back to your comfortable life. And they go back to their six-by-eight cell. All right, that's experiencing. Now, that's not experiencing their life. That's a whole nother level. But that's experiencing in a way where you can now relate to it in a much more significant way. And everybody prognosticates and sort of elaborates on adjudication and how it should work and that's right where it fits in and society. You, you, you sit in you know you can say oh the criminal justice system's got problems or it's fucked up or you know it's i don't believe in this or that yeah you can have that conversation but okay have you spent time with the kid who's 22 in jail for 60 years because at 17 he got in a fight at 10 he saw his sister raped in front of him his older sister, and he decided at 10 that his job was to protect his older sister. When he was 17, he gets in a fight with a guy who's beating up his older sister. The guy pulls a gun on him. He knocks the gun out of the guy's hand. They scrabble, scramble for the gun. The gun goes off, shoots the guy in the leg, doesn't kill him. He gets 60 years. 60 years. If I was him, I'd be out. I would have hired a lawyer. You know, I would have gotten out for self-defense or for something. I, I wouldn't have ended up in jail for that. The guy didn't die. The gun hit him. In the, it was his gun, right? Well, what's the difference? This is a black kid from, I don't know. Where, it, would, it wouldn't even have been a conversation about right? you. It would have been a conversation about, about the other guy yeah. that was, had the gun, right? Yeah. I mean, boom. And it just changes your worldview. I use that example. We try to have that experience as investors and as partners and as people in what we do continually. Do we do it at a 10 out of 10? No fucking way, right? Like we have plenty of, you know, misses in terms of how we engage with that. We make lots of mistakes about how we engage with that. At the, at the last comment, at the other end of the spectrum, we have great lives, right? I mean, 
you realize that from the position that we're in, the things we get to do are awesome. And so trying to immerse ourselves in it, whether it's that or whether it's with the CEO who just laid off 25% of her company and is trying to figure out how to get through it, rather than say, good job laying off those people, you know, see you in, a, see you in six weeks. You know, we're there. Like, what can we do to keep helping that person from all the experiences we've had living in that country? So to close the loop on this topic, what are you guys, your partners and all, you know, the whole foundry community of <laughs> folks, what are you guys not doing to afford yourselves the time for those experiences? Because everybody else is real busy and they, they're not affording that time. I don't think we're making... Not because they're making a decision not to do that. I'm just saying that's not how they... Practice. Yeah. That's not their practice. I don't think we're making conscious trade-offs. Um, I, I would say that... Well, I'll repeat something I said last night. I, I, I went to the Galvanize. I uh, did an event to Galvanize in Boulder. They just opened their Boulder, Boulder uh, location across the street from us. So I, I wandered over and gave a talk to about, I don't know, 50, 75 people uh, just as a welcome. And I made the comment that 10 years ago my ability to engage with each of them individually one-on-one was pretty high. And I would have put effort into engaging with each of them one-on-one 10 years ago. Today, my ability to do that, given all of the things that I have as my load is very hard. Um, It's also emotionally harder as I get older because of just the energy dynamics of all the things that we're trying to cover. So a trade-off that probably exists today is the physical engagement with people, especially in the startup community. You know, we invest all over the country. So that's one that's an easy one to identify that there's a lot less of. Um, That doesn't mean that the engagement is less. I'd like to think that we're still just engaged. If anybody's listening to this and they want to talk to me, send me an email at bradatfell.com. I'll try to respond. Be sympathetic. I get 500 a day. Start with the punchline. But if you want to engage... I'm happy to. My ability to engage more deeply with each person is much less. And so the number of people that I have that deep engagement with that are new relationships probably is narrower than it used to be, or at least feels to people externally that it's narrower than it used to be. Um, Another thing that has probably uh, changed over time is individual... I was going to say individual exploration, but that's not, that's not right. We have to work harder to carve out time to work on things that are new for us. You know, exploring completely new things are harder because of the load and responsibility of the stuff that I have going on. And so Defy would be a good example. It's much more conscious. I took a day and went deep on that versus being able to sort of weave it in between things. It wasn't just going to happen. Yeah, I had to say, this is the day I'm going. And, you know, when I come back, I know that I'm going to have, you know, a whole bunch of stuff that I'm going to have to do on Saturday to catch up versus have whatever Saturday I want to have. So it's, it's more of that conscious trade-off than it used to be a lot more fluid feeling. You've been talking about a lot of uh, kind of creating diversity and in- encouraging that. When you guys were starting uh, Foundry, was that one of the driving principles or has that kind of come in more recent years, I think, with the B Corp and startup visa, getting more uh, folks here and things like that. I think you guys have been really pushing for it recently, but was that something you guys were? I think it's always thinking? mattered to us. I think our, our action on it has changed in terms of, of more of these things stacking up. It kind of comes back to what Luke said at the beginning, which is that, you know, we had these things that as more time passes, you have more of them going and all of a sudden you, it feels like a critical mass of stuff, right? I mean, the diversity thing, I became involved in National Center for Women Information Technology before we started Foundry. I started working on the immigration stuff, and my partner supported that um, very, very actively in like 2010. And that came out of experience that we had at Techstars and frustration that we had at Techstars. Um, the notion of broad inclusiveness, you know, that idea came from in 2012 from startup communities. You know, when I wrote about the third principle of a startup community, you have to be inclusive of anyone who wants to engage at any level. Um, it's, you know, so these things happen over time. It's not that there's a grand plan. And I think part of the neat thing about the way we think about the world is that the world is a network, not a hierarchy. So we're not trying to have 
you know, a big initiative and then execute on the big initiative. We have lots of things all over the place that we're touching and trying to impact, but they're patterns. Over time, the patterns build into something more bottom up than top down. You say, oh, yeah, we're, you know, diversity is really important here. And here's the four things, you know, that we've done over time that impact that. And okay, here's another 50 going forward that that philosophy can help us drive. By the way, our investing works the same way, right? When we started, we have a set of themes and we had some investments that were in those themes from our past. And a decade later, you know, we've made whatever 80, 90 investments through Foundry. Some of the themes we have honed and evolved and have real clarity on what we're doing. And other themes we looked at and said, yeah, that didn't work very well. Let's stop doing that kind of stuff. But it wasn't that we had, okay, we need to allocate 10 of our investments to this theme and or 10% to this theme and 20% to this theme and geography would be another one. We said at the beginning, we invest all around the US, but we don't have an allocation model, right? We don't say this much needs to be here and this much needs to be here. We said, our, our guess is a third will be in Colorado, a third will be in the Bay Area, a third will be everywhere else. And if you look backwards, it's roughly that, but you say, well, where is everywhere else? What, you know, okay, great, everywhere else. So all your other investments are in New York and Boston, right? No, I think we're the second largest VC investor in Seattle. And we're the second largest VC investor in Seattle after Madrona, which is, is based there. Not because Seattle is some place that we made a strategic decision to be in. That's where the people you liked were. Yeah. We liked the people. We liked the community. We're spending time there. The network built, right? So it's much more of that model versus a deliberate controlled one. So let's, let's segue that into another topic, which Danny and I wanted to talk about. We talked with a lot of people on the show about we're not so sure we need venture money in Colorado. We're not so sure that if you're a founder, you need local money. What is your reaction to those two I, sort of assumptions? I love hearing. I wish you'd shift not sure to more confident that you don't need. Okay. Um, I think that there is a long mythology that to have a successful startup community, you need local venture capital. And I think that's false. There are three layers of capital when you think about companies that raise money, and then you have a fourth category of company that doesn't raise any venture capital or any equity investments, self-funded company. My first company was bootstrapped, right? You hear there's plenty of companies here that are bootstrapped companies that are very, very successful. And at points in time, some of them may take capital from some sources, but they didn't start out with, I need to have capital to get going. Um, the three layers are, let's say the first 2 million of capital that you'd raise, the next 20 or so of cap, 20 million of capital that you'd raise, and then the capital that you'd raise above that. So the first category under 2 million, that doesn't need venture capital. That's angel money. That's friends and family money. That's being scrappy. And we've got uh, an abundance of that in this, in this region. The capital that you raise after you've got a successful company, after, you know, and, and whether you've built it yourself with no capital or you've raised 20, 30, $40 million, the next round, that's growth capital. That's easy. That capital has huge mobility. It'll find you. If you've got a yeah, successful that, that business, discovers you. It's, it's coming to find you. The stuff in the middle, it's a bitch no matter where. It's really hard to raise that capital no matter where. And the idea that you can't build businesses that need that range of capital without local capital makes no sense. And would you agree that, and this is uh, germane to the Denver Boulder situation, I mean, I've found that it's an opportunity to get credibility in places that you don't necessarily have it and exposure. Yep. Right? Which is to say, with associated content, for example, we had the opportunity to raise money locally and we sort of felt like we had a lot of people on board locally and that if we could get people on the coast to sort of support this, that would be sort of what, what we need. And it extends, it extends your footprint in terms of your network of people who are trying to help you build a business. Especially if you do what you said, which is collect your, your sort of angel friends and family, early stage stuff locally, which is usually what happens yep. in any case. So I don't think you need a robust local venture capital community to have A, successful companies, B, successful startup communities. I don't think it detracts. I think it's additive, but it's not, it's not a necessary requirement for that. And that's, 
you know, hopefully reinforcing that frame of reference. The, the last thing I'd say is I think a lot of people use in our world, it's true across society and life, right? We use excuses to justify, or, or we use excuses to justify our reality, or we use things that don't exist to justify why we're having trouble making progress against something. And there's a, a phrase that I've used for a long time that I love that I learned as an undergraduate, which is um, necessary but not sufficient, <laughs> right? And you know, the, the the sort of notion that capital is necessary but not sufficient uh, is is a good dynamic, right? Number one, it's not always necessary, right? So you you sometimes don't even get to that premise or oftentimes don't even get to that premise. With my first business, we didn't raise any capital. So it wasn't even necessary. Even if you raise it, it's not sufficient <laughs> to being successful, Yeah. right? And so you get- It definitely doesn't equal Very success. few things are sufficient. That's right. You get, you individual get, you get stuck in this loop runs. of, well, I can't be successful because I don't have this. Well, no, right? Even if you had that, that doesn't mean you're going to be successful. That just means you have that. And it sort of builds on itself. And I think the best entrepreneurs are the ones that don't get stuck in that loop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, saying my company didn't succeed because we weren't able to raise that round, you know, locally, all of that kind of stuff is not a, I mean, doesn't equal success even if you, got, if you get right. it. Let me ask you a question that we ask everybody here, which is... Seven. And, be, and because I know you... Because I listen to all the podcasts. I, I Seven's know, my answer. I, it is close, though. It's close. It could be. It would be a very abstract answer to this question. <laughs> and I, actually, maybe we should stick with it. But we ask everybody sort of, you know, what is the thing whether it's a business idea, a trend, uh, an actual business that you feel like you get that nobody else gets, which can be sort of a, uh, can often be sort of a transcendental feeling where you're sort of like, wow, I'm sticking with this, but I'm clearly in a, in a room alone. And what is something that, that you don't get that everybody else seems to be pretty much yeah, unanimously supporting? A seven. Seven. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. in this town, everybody <laughs> loves the number seven. So uh, there you go. Let's let's uh, let's play with this. So I don't know that there's something uh, in the first category that I'm tirelessly pursuing that I don't think anybody else gets. But I am a big believer that the machines have already taken over, and we're just waiting for them to catch up with us. Uh, I think that so that's sort of like the. Is that to the level of the Elon Musk? Like, yeah, we, tell me this is not a simulated experience in itself? It could be, right? It could be. Uh, you know, I, I love The Matrix. Go watch The Matrix, right? Elon's idea is not necessarily, it's, you know, yeah, it wasn't an original Elon it, right? idea. Right. Um, and it's just more believable today than it even was five years ago. That's right. And, and you think about uh, anything to do with us as a sentient species and how that fits within the universe and what that actually means— it's it's incoherent. Like we don't have any idea. And as humans, like we try to create meaning around the fact that we exist, and and you know we do things, and you know we can get all frustrated with things that humans do to each other. Um, as far as I can tell, since the beginning of time, you know, uh, a person's been trying to kill their neighbor to take over their backyard. That's just part of being human. Mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, there's a wonder or the backyard that they think is their backyard. The backyard they want that's in next to them. They kill the person who's ever in that yeah. backyard, yeah. right? Um, there's a great uh, set of books. Uh, the the first book is called the the Three Body Problem by a Chinese uh, sci-fi writer called um, Calvin, and I'm never going to say his last name properly, but it's X U I. And he um, he just came out with the third book. And if you like science fiction and you want to stretch your mind a little bit, uh, just go type. Amazon third body problem, download it. It takes about 50 to 100 pages to really start to get into the rhythm of it because it's Chinese translated into English, but it's unbelievable. And it's part of this. It's like stretching your mind into thinking about what does it actually mean to exist as a human and take everything you think it means to exist and turn it inside out, upside down, sideways, stretch it. So that's, that's one for me, which is um, as I'm getting older, I'm becoming much more comfortable with the notion that we have absolutely no idea what any of this means and that we're imputing value to it ourselves. And so, you know, it shifts back to this notion of being in the moment as much as you possibly can. That doesn't mean that all is good, right? There's a lot of bad and there's a lot of bad feelings and emotions, negative emotions that you feel and that you have to reconcile with. But that's part of the experience. So I, I put that in the category, not of I believe it and nobody else does, but that 
You're in the margins on that. I'm, I'm pretty far down on that path now. The flip side is, um, what does everybody, what, what, what is, what, what does it seem that there's pretty good consensus that everybody's pretty well rallied behind that is the, where there's a there there and you may not agree with that. Yeah. I am incredibly skeptical. I'm going to use that word and pick it precisely. I try to pull out the word skeptical that as humans, we can control things at a macro level. Um, there is so much top-down behavior and thinking in our society, um, whether it's you know government or religion or military or business, you know that's organized from the top down. I just simply don't think that is a an an effective approach. I think everything in my world, the way I approach things, is bottom up. I think they're a result of individual engagement and contribution, activity, thought, challenging. And I find that to be much more uh, powerful than to try to control things top down. And I believe that that's shifting dramatically. Um, part of what's shifting dramatically about that is if you think about, you know, I'm 50, right? You think about a 20-year-old today and their relationship with communication, information, and hierarchy versus a 50-year-old's versus a 70-year-old's you know, it's very different. And we have a generational arc as a society, uh, whether we call it, you know, the boomers to Gen X to Gen Y to millennial, whatever you want, right? There's just a big spread across four or five different frames of thinking. And I think the frame of thinking around the world from the next generation or the kids today that have grown up entirely connected with no dial-up modems, I guess though, if you're part of AOL, you, do you actually use AOL Mail and have to dial up to get your email on a modem? The sounds um, at their office, I mean, you can hear the, the modem sounds. Yeah, everywhere. I don't even hear it anymore. Yeah, it's just every day. You yeah, it's like if you worked at the airport, those guys aren't walking around saying these airplanes are really loud. Yeah, I know. The, um, but it's that notion. It's just this sort of broad connectedness really changes the way those things work. The last thing of that in, in the world of, of entrepreneurship and technology, I'll bring it back you know, to, to that, is... I really actively dislike the idea of VC as celebrity or whatever it is. And I actively dislike the notion of entrepreneur as celebrity. Um, I don't fight against it, but I actively dislike it. I find it to be not helpful in general. It's the media and society's, you know, boom bust, you know, from nothing to something. Okay, now you've got something, I must tear you down. And if you look at people over a long arc of their life and assume, you know, 50, 60, 70 year arc, individuals, regardless of what they do, can either contribute meaningfully to the universe as we understand it or not. And the notion of celebrity doesn't actually add to that. And in a lot of cases, the notion of celebrity detracts. Um, the thing I let people ponder is we have seen recently on display uh, several very famous and well-known people who are trying to do different things that are extraordinarily narcissistic. And if you think about how the narcissism impacts their behavior and what they do <clears throat> and how that then has a second-order effect to everybody else, if you took out the amplification of their celebrity that feeds the narcissism, what would they do? And, and would they even be in the conversation? And I think they wouldn't, right? So the celebrity feeds that. There's this feedback loop around it that is it's a, it, exhausting. It, it credentials things that are in a completely no business arbitrary. being credential because they're not substantive. And, you know, it's fine. Like, you know, newspapers need, well, to the extent that they still exist, they need to sell, right? Media needs eyeballs, uh, you know, article, whatever, right? Like we understand that that's uh, engine of commerce for the way that we function and that we like that. And that, you know, people magazine exists for a reason. Um, not sure what the reason <laughs> is anymore, but it exists for a reason. Uh, I dislike that actively. And, um, I have, have you it, ever, let me it, ask you a question on that. And then I know you have one more question. Then we no, just to ask about this in your yeah. experience in, in your portfolio. Have you seen that kind of any sort of direct correlations with those types of behavior yes. with, yes, we have a, we have a line we like to use. Uh, I wrote a blog post about a number of years ago uh, titled Silent Killers. 
the <laughs> best companies we have been investors in are silent killers. No one knows about them until all of a sudden everybody knows about them. And the entrepreneurs and the leaders are just silent killers, right? SendGrid's a good example. They're just everywhere. Gnip was one of the best ones. Nobody even knew, like, oh, didn't those guys go out of business? No, they're actually just heads down, kicking ass. And all of a sudden, they're everywhere. Let me ask you a quick question, and this is going to be the last one because I know our time's up and we're getting thrown out of the dungeon here. But So I agree with you very much about the sort of, hey, look at me concept, and that's on both sides of the VCs, founders, all that sort of stuff. And, and I hear a lot of people say that all the time. You know, I, I prefer the silent uh, but deadly founders. I prefer these sort of, you know, and, and I feel like a lot, that's a sort of a common language. Like the, the celebrity VC, maybe that's not really the right thing for the culture, but, it, but everybody does it. I think that it's just a classic. Is it because there's just more of them? So there's going to, you know, there's just going to be, there's going to be 20% of them are, are, are a lot of flag waving sort of, uh, hey, look at me types. Or is it, you know, you know, you see it, the good corollary is in sports. I mean, there's some sports that are extremely popular sports. Major League Baseball is an extremely popular sport. Most people don't know who half of the top 20 players in that league are. The NFL is not that way. The NBA is not that way. Um, and I think it's a very unique thing. And I think there's also the perception in the VC world that, that those are the people that get the money. Yeah, so two things. One is I think it's human nature. So maybe unavoidable, you know, it's just human nature. The other is for whatever reason, well, human nature again, is that we emulate people that we see as successful. I am using that phrase instead of admire. I think the evolved view is that you emulate behavior that you admire, not people that you admire. The problem is that it's a lot harder to grab onto something that's abstract and stay on it for a long period of time than it is to be more concrete. So you emulate instead of the behavior you emulate or you, you follow the people that you admire. As humans, we're all flawed. Like, you know, we, we <laughs> start there. So even if somebody has behavior that you admire, they are going to do things that you don't admire. Everyone. And... When you start trying to emulate a person, you're not able to necessarily emulate the pieces of them that you admire, and it doesn't necessarily synchronize with your own personality, behavior, needs, etc. So then it becomes very simple. You say, well, this person is talking this way, promoting their business this way looking this way and they're being successful and therefore to be a successful founder, I need to do this. It's a template. And so you follow that person rather than saying over a long period of time, this person did this thing very consistently in, in their behavior. I like that. I'm going to fold that into my value system. It's abstract and it's really hard. So I, I think I'm struggling a little to codify it, but that's my reaction to why that happens. I, I think that it's probably unavoidable. And you can say, is it a good thing or a bad thing, right? When I say I actively dislike the notion of the celebrity, do, am I on a mission to eliminate it? No, I, it's exogenous to me. I can't do anything about it. I'm not going to bother with it. I'm just going to keep doing the things that I want to do. And you're not do. invisible. No, and I reckon, you know, is is my visibility additive to you know, what we do at Foundry or additive to what we do at Techstars. I hope so. If it's not, somebody better stick me in a dark room in a dungeon somewhere and shut me the fuck up, right? right. Um, but you say, well, are you doing that because you are a narcissist and want fame? No, I'm doing that because I deeply believe in some things and this is how I engage. And if you don't like how I engage, please do yourself and me a favor and just ignore me or give me feedback. Hey, Brad, not helpful, not interesting, not useful, confusing, and give me something to engage with you around that so I can learn because that's part of how I learn. So it's this very interesting and challenging balance that on the outside, when you're a founder or a CEO and you have all the different pressures you have, 
is sorting what is going to be helpful and what is not. And, you know, I'd sort of leave with, for me, the best way that I've evolved as a leader is by doing two things. One, listening to all the feedback, good and bad, and listening more to the feedback that's negative, critical, hopefully constructive, because I like to think I'm a pretty nice person, so it's tough when you get something that's harsh and negative and antagonistic, but I try to listen to that too without having a, a judgment on it. Yeah. And especially a judgment on the person because I don't know anything about what's causing them to feel the way they do about whatever it is other than engaging. Um, and, and then the second is to try to be internally consistent over a long period of time, recognizing that I make lots of mistakes and I do lots of things that are not consistent. And part of the thing that helps me do that is to have a number of essentially mentors, experienced people, and they could be peer mentors that I trust, that know me well, that are constantly in my world giving me feedback and open to me giving them feedback. Because if all you're doing is getting feedback randomly from the outside world, that doesn't really help you. It's, it's, it's too random. If all you're doing is getting feedback from your inner circle, especially if you've configured an inner circle that you're one up on and all they're saying is, yes, Brad, this, yes, Brad, that, that's not very helpful. But if you have close mentors who can challenge you, who can give you positive feedback, who know your value system, and you're listening to them as well as interacting with them, and you're open to a bunch of people you don't know in that same way, you can be much more calibrated. And that, that's what I encourage all CEOs to do. Find a set of people who you, basically you can be naked with. And they can be naked with you and listen. And then the same thing with everybody out in the world giving you feedback, whether it's customers or partners or employees, whatever. And know that that's not comfortable, but that's part of learning about yourself over a long period of time. Well, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Um, the, you know, one thing that Danny and I talked about is we really appreciate you as a person who has just the most immense capacity. You know, I think everybody's really busy and uh, not, not because you came on the show. I, I, aside from that, you have, you have an, an amazing capacity for, for doing so many things and being so, many invol so involved in things that I think, you know, the, uh, the greatest ability in the world is reliability. And you're an incredibly reliable person because of this capacity that you have to just be involved, have a high level of give a shit, have an opinion, also do the hard work. So we feel really lucky to have you on the show and just be a part of the community that we're in. It's really something that's meaningful to Absolutely. us and to a Absolutely. lot of people around here. And a lot of people probably don't get to spend time with you, but, um, but I think that's a an amazing ability that you got there. Thanks. So appreciate Thanks. that. Well, my, my humble pleasure. Yeah. And now he's off to a, to a board meeting right now but he, <laughs> for a company that has been around for a long time, which is another example of stick to itiveness. So thank you. Appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for listening to Turnpikers recorded at Postmodern Company in downtown Denver. More information on this show is available at turnpikers.com and at turnpikers on Twitter. Reach out with questions and recommend future guests. 